y'all are now. The Gales all over the world tuning in to the second episode of the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and I've got to say from the bottom of my heart a huge thank you to you all. I've been absolutely blown away by the response to this podcast. You have an idea and you think, Jesus, yeah, I, I must do that. And then you think, will it work? Will people like it? And, that? and it's just been amazing uh, the amount of love and feedback and uh, positive comments and things that I've gotten from people from all walks of life and indeed from all over the world. And already when I started this, I was saying that there's no such thing as an Irish, uh, an ordinary Irish person abroad. And my God almighty, have you has proved me right. Because since the first episode came out and I went into various Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups and been tweeting stuff and putting stuff on Instagram and the stories that are coming in, lads, are only incredible. And I kind of, I knew this. This is why I started the podcast. I knew you were going to do this and it's just amazing. So I'm trying to book people up now over the coming weeks and... Um, try to get these interviews in the can so to speak and get them done but the stories are just wild and a few of them will be people who are quite well known others are people that you never would have heard of otherwise but I can't wait to share these stories with you Uh, in particular I'd like to give a big shout out to two particular communities who've been so supportive it's been unbelievable the Irish in Philadelphia were just amazing from the very beginning when I posted in their Facebook group they went in and went yeah what do you need yeah who do you need to talk to how do you want to get in touch with you what do you want from them and again like the fantastic stories have been an Irish owned undertakers there which is closing after almost a hundred years that's a story that we'll get to but they're just brilliantly warm people there's a man there John Handy who's teaching Irish we're hoping to get him on uh, in the near future as well but just a tremendously warm welcome and then my good friend Colin McGrath down below uh, in New Zealand uh, works an awful lot with the, the friends of New Zealand the Irish friends of New Zealand down there very active in the community there but also very active in general in terms of networks on, on LinkedIn and this kind of thing but uh, Colin was really, really generous in terms of sharing the podcast among all these groups of, of people who might be interested because that's the way this will survive, lads. That's the way that this will spread. It's great to be able to do it, but it also has to reach a scale whereby it's worth doing it every week, where it's worth my time making the shows and it's worth your time to listen to them. And that will only happen if we can create this big global community that we have the vision for. And the way to do that is to share it. It's to share it on LinkedIn. It's to comment. It's to share it on Facebook. Comment. Engage with it. Yeah, I like that. No, I didn't like that. You're an idiot. You annoyed me last week, but I love this. I'm looking forward to hearing you talking to this person. Have you tried that person? So, uh, it's been it's been a roller coaster, you could say, in the very beginning. But I've really, really enjoyed it. Now, listen, nobody tunes in to hear this, uh, to hear me waffling and uh, talking away about various bits and pieces. But as I say, I really appreciate the support, and uh, let's keep it going now because I've never believed in a project more in my life than what I believe in this one. But without further ado, we're going to get down to business because the first person that we're going to talk to this week, this week again, we're going to talk to two people, right? Both Irish people, both involved in creative pursuits in their own way. The first of them is. Joe O'Neill from County Kildare. Now, Joe is a member of a very creative family. His brother Kev's a great singer and guitar player. Back in Ireland now, I believe, but he was working over here for Jemison in Sweden. That's when I got to know the family. And then Joe came over. And Joe is an actor, a writer, and a comedian. And he spent a bit of time over here in Sweden. And then he moved to London. And since getting to London, he has set up this network for creative Irish people, for musicians, for poets, and for actors. And it's just quite like this podcast. It's taken off. 
stuff. So they're now doing sort of trad sessions and they're doing readings and they're helping each other get jobs and stage plays and stand-up nights and all sorts of amazing stuff. So Joe actually visited Stockholm again recently. Now, I didn't have a chance to book into him, but I did book him in for a Zoom chat afterwards so that he could sort of present this idea of the Irish Creative Network in London. So here is Joe from County Kildare and I'll be back to you after the chat with him to tell you about the next guest. Oh, Mary, this London's a wonderful sight With people here working by day and by night They don't sow potatoes nor barley nor wheat But there's gangs of them digging for gold in the street Joe O'Neill, could you explain what the Irish Creative Collective in London that you've started is all about, my friend? Yeah, absolutely, Phil. Um, basically, when I came over here, um, the thing that kind of frustrated me and surprised me was that there is no outlet for Irish creatives in London. Um, and there has kind of never been. And I didn't really know the the real depth of that until I got properly stuck into this. But I was like... In my head, and I think I got this a bit from from my time in Stockholm and especially seeing uh, my brother Kev who put stuff together um, through the football tree, through Stockholm Gales, that like you get Irish people in a room together and they'll just have a laugh. And they're the most sociably sociable people with each other, especially when they're not in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But like there's a certain, and I've noticed as well, I work a lot of um, events, like high-end events, and it's gas. Anytime um, there is an Irish person in the room, and I, I would work there, I'd be a bartender, and they would be whatever they'd be, that they'd be the other side of the bar, but generally something that earns a lot of money. And we'd have this moment of like, what are you doing here? You know, and we'd have never met each other in the world. We have no idea who they are. And this happened to me last night. So I was like, what are you doing here? And then we'd end up having this conversation and people looking at us as if we were long lost brothers or something like that. But like, we might never even learn each other's names. Yeah. But like, if you get Irish people abroad, especially in England together, just magic will happen. So I set up the first one, I think it was March, last uh, March of this year. And it was just a networking night. And that's all it started off as being. And we had about 15 people there. And we had a bit of music with um, Hawk, the band who play regularly in our a really amazing upcoming Irish group. They performed at it. And then just from there, and my whole ethos was, as long as people are having a good time, they'll mm-hmm. want to come back. So I didn't really envision like exactly making a company or making a collective out of this. But I thought there was something. And then we had the first one um, in Madden's in East Finchley. The second one was a month later. We had it in um, the Oxford Arms in Camden and the Irish pub. The two of them are Irish pubs. And then we were in, um, we had one more which had to get cancelled because of the, the rail strikes. But we made it, we made up, we went to the Toucan Soho and ended up in a, a another bar in Soho. And so it was kind of the unofficial one. And then we had in the Irish Centre. And each time it's grown. And because of the Irish Centre's influence and they have a, a nice bit of reach, it um it allowed more and more people to hear about it. But yeah. the ethos always stayed the same. As long as people are having a good time, mm-hmm. they'll want to come back and they'll want to spread the word. So that that's has been how we've been growing. And um, but from that and from the frustration, especially from people that have been there 20 years in London and mm-hmm. saying that this doesn't exist, there is no outlet for Irish performers, mm-hmm. that I was like, well, I'm gonna have to capitalize on this and um and make something of it. So from that, I put out an audition call for musical theatre performers to do a showcase um, early next year, which we had auditions for last week, self-tapes that were sent in. And the the standard is, and I wasn't even surprised by this, but the standard is out of this world. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and then from that as well, I had a meeting with a couple of guys about putting on a, I won't go into too much detail about these things yet, but it is a showcase for Irish writers, directors and actors, mm-hmm. and as well as producers, hopefully. And that will be aimed for May next year. And uh, I haven't put a call out for that yet, but I, I'm not going to be surprised by the, the level of talent that comes in. Mm-hmm. And we've set up um, side subjects, side uh, gigs as well. So um, the main thing every month will be the networking night which will both act as a a networking event, but also an event that is just to get Irish people that... I Look, to go slightly sideways on this again, and that's probably going to happen a lot in this conversation, um, another main reason I've set this up is because London is very, very tough. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first thing I'm told, when I, when I and a lot of people are told when they move over here, is that you will hate it for the first six months, which I think is a bizarre sort of thing that is accepted. That when you come to London, you're going to hate it for six months. And I'm like, I don't know why that is. And I and when I first moved over, mates of mine were telling me, like, there's no shame in coming home. I know people that, like, were chewed up and eaten out, eaten by London and mm-hmm. sent home. And I was like, that's, I don't understand why that has to be the case. So I set this up as well as a safe space at the first port of call for Irish people that come over here. And they don't have to be necessarily creatives, but they have to go, oh, this is, this is happening. I'm going to go here. I'm going to be surrounded by loads of fun Irish people who want to have a good time. And then ideally there will be one event a week. That's the, the one of the ultimate goals. Have one event a week, um, which is Irish centric in a in a creative sense. And um it's for anyone to come, but ideally, of course, um it's mainly for Irish people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've started we had a poetry night last week. Sorry, two weeks ago now. We had um we have the networking night next next week and we have a music set. Sorry, we have the networking night the twenty fifth and we have a music session next week. So we're just throwing everything out there um, and giving people an opportunity to flex their creative bones in uh, in London or f- creative muscles in London. And um, and it's really, really growing. And it's something that um, that the enthusiasm I feel from everyone who either that repeatedly come or are coming for the first time um, is just exceptional. And for me, it's just been a no brainer. And it's like, like I said, once you get Irish people into in a room together, give them a couple of instruments or give them a chance to just show up to rate creativity, just magic will happen. And it has not failed every time, every single time something surprising happens. It's, it's like it's like alchemy. You just put them in there and you let them at it and they'll find something to talk about and something to do. And then all of a sudden yeah. you'll see the heads thrown back and laughing and you go, yeah, this was the right thing to do. How has it been sort of received? You mentioned mentioned the London Irish Centre there because obviously there's an established Irish community yeah. in London. Why was it, do you think, that, you know, in the creative sphere that, that it was lacking? I know it can be a lonely place for everybody. It's why I yeah. never moved there myself, you know. Yeah. But what was it that was lacking? Because, you know, we have a tendency, those of us who are a little bit older, we do things the way we've always done them because that's what we've always done. So, you know, what, what, how have they received you on this initiative? Everyone has been really, really positive, like exceptionally positive. Um, people are kind of just blown away by the fact that I think one that it hasn't been done before, which I still can't properly fathom. Like I've only been here just over a year and I just don't understand why the mindset hasn't been. Let's get people together. I think it's it's hard to do it on a consistent basis. I don't know. Maybe egos get in the way because I always feel like um, with any leader in a in a creative sense it's it tends to be like oh all about me look how great i am mm. you know what i mean and um, and that kind of can cause derision but like with this and that's why it's a collective and not like a company it is it's all about you know uh, many was uh, was it a high tide re- 
lifts many the rising boats. tide lifts all the boats yeah yes yeah so that's kind of my my uh mantra even though i can't even remember how to say it that like, <laughs> like just don't get it tattooed without checking with yeah. me first right <laughs> <laughs> I do that with all my tattoos. That's why I have none. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is a case of just um, like putting these opportunities together and and just try to do it in a positive like manner, which is for me just to showcase the Irish uh, creative scene over here. Because um, like my uncle always tells me, like we built New- um, London. I was about to say New York. We built New York as we well. Built that as well, yeah. Yeah, we built. Yeah, what haven't we built? What hasn't he built? Um, but it it is true. We have this sort of um this might sound a little bit dramatic, but we have a bit of like second class syndrome over here. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like we came over here. Like I remember I was working in a pub, um, like a prop like you genuinely like it's it's in um North London. You would have felt when you walk in there that you hadn't left Ireland at all. There's people mm-hmm. who have been in London for 50 years and still have their uh, Irish accents and just talk to Irish people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember one of them. And they weren't even saying this. And this is a typical, like, she was in her 70s or something. But she said something like, oh, that foreign man or something like that. And I was like, you can't say that foreign man. You're a foreign person. Like, you're <laughs> That's not all of us here. That's every single person in this room. You are not, you can't say that. But I feel like there's this sense of assimilation that we come over here, we kind of grow up in a similar culture. Um, and we, we're white and we're English speaking and that we just sort of, and we're just like, oh, we're Ireland. And we kind of join forces. And that's not really the case because we're very unique and very different mm-hmm. in uh, so many ways um, that I'm like, and also our contribution to culture um, in the UK, if like you can look to the Beatles, the Smiths, uh, uh, the o- Oasis, you know, in, in music for one. And then actors like, um, the, for example, Josh O'Connor is just a name that comes to my mind who just played Prince Charles and is going to, going to go on to do amazing things. He's Irish, like, or Irish of descent. And you just look across the Irish, the, like, the top actors, the top performers, writers, anything. Like, you're looking at probably about 70, 60, 70% of them have, are of Irish descent. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we have left a mark that can never be rubbed out of England mm-hmm. and we just don't take credit for it. So instead of, like, for me, I'm like, instead of, and this might be thinking too big or uh, too massive or whatever, but like for me, I'm like, instead of allowing it to go down generations where we end up just being assimilated and then our kids end up doing great things and then they go, oh, I'm a bit Irish as well. I go, no, I'm going to take it, you know, from the very beginning, from as soon as they come over. And I'm like, let's just show out how great we are right now. And let's instead of just being cast as Richard Harris was in as the doctor mm-hmm. in um in Macbeth and having one line where he, I, do, you, do you ever hear this story? Oh, no, um, keep going. He yeah, he got cast as um, the doctor in Macbeth, and this is when he just out of drama school, and he um, despised the guy playing Macbeth because he was um, staunchly anti Irish. He used to tell him that he couldn't speak properly to um, everything. Um, he called him a paddy, and he just said, "He said one night, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to get this guy." So, like the famous speech in Macbeth is uh, "Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow." Um, Pete's in his petty pace from day to day, and. Um, he and the lead up to that is Macbeth goes, um, my uh, doctor, how is my wife? And he t- turns back and goes, your wife is dead. And then that leads into that monologue. OK, so so Harris said he was going to get him. So on the he go right before he went into his speech and he goes, how far is my wife? Harris turns around and go, she's fine. She's <laughs> she was a bit poorly for a little bit. But you know what? She's after pulling herself together and she'll be down to you in a minute. She's grand. And he, uh <laughs> 
Which is grand. So your man left stunned. He walked off the stage and I think the last thing you heard him say is Harris opened the stage door was taxi. <laughs> and um, and he was so like instead of having to um, pull out the stops to be to be you know taken notice of, I'm just like let's just show what we're why we're great and why just we have such a, a mar- yeah why we've left such American Irish culture uh, sorry on on British culture so that's that's in my mind it might be you know dreaming for the stars but but why not. How is it going for you personally, Joe? Because you moved over here and um, people may not know you were in Stockholm for a little while. You mentioned your brother Kevin was here as well. Then you yeah. moved to London and it's a very competitive, like London and LA are two places that, you know, if you want to be into acting or comedy or writing or directing, they're the places to be. Have yeah. you found, has this been beneficial to you by meeting other creative Irish people that doors have opened for you? Or have you found that you're given so much time to this that it's actually costing you opportunities? Oh, it's absolutely. Um, I think in the long run, it's going to benefit me. That's without me knowing any future. But I I always sort of looked at it going, the best way to get work and the best way to represent yourself is by creating your own stuff. So that's what I've been trying to do. And with this network and stuff, um, it's it like I am finding my people in that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I am um meeting people like not only not only because they're Irish that that we get on so well, but they're also enthusiastic. And they want to work and they want to create. So in whatever sphere it is, and it also allows me to learn about different crafts that I don't know about. So I'm all, I'm always trying to add stuff to <clears throat> to to myself as <laughs> sorry. Um try uh add much to myself as I possibly can. So in that sense, it has definitely um enhanced, I feel, uh my scope, or at least is beginning to. But of course, in the other sense of things, the natural way and the the like the worn out way of doing it is you do auditions like whenever you they come if you're going for an actor you do auditions every single day you put yourself out there in whatever way you can and you uh, or if you're a comedian you get gigs but for me I always knew that this is it was never going to be that way for me I was never just going to be able to stick to that it might be the ADD it might be anything um, but I'm like I need to be consistently doing um, different things mm. and this really fits into that because I'm trying to get better at um, playing guitar and getting better at singing. Um, I began, I set up the music session, but the great thing about Irish people is they are mad for a session, um, mm. especially a music session. So I can, I even though I set this up, the WhatsApp group I put together with all the guys that are involved has met up yesterday, had a rehearsal. Like they've been constantly in contact with each other, trying to get like harmonies down, songs down. And I'm like, guys, it's just sitting around and playing music, but they, they want to take it to, their profession what they feel their professional level is so for me even though I'm setting it up I'm just going to be sitting back and just practicing playing guitar while really beautiful things is happening around me Um, so for that it is I'm going to be you know I'm going to improve my my playing ability on guitar by being surrounded by people who want to do the best they possibly can do in stuff that they are infinitely better than me at. So like that is one example of it. The other other night we had our poetry night I went to that I I didn't write I don't like I've kind of like touched on poetry, but I have never written it before. But over the last little while, I've really, really understood why poetry is is as important as as it is. Um, like Eaton Hawk, I I don't know if you saw this interview. He put it beautifully, but he said that uh, poetry doesn't matter until it does matter. It's effectively mm-hmm. what he said. Like until you're trying to, until you lose someone and you're trying, you have to say something at their funeral, and then you you find um, a Ginsberg play, and you're like. 
I begin to write a poem and you're like, this is sums up exactly how I feel. Yeah. That's when it becomes important. So that that's how it is for me as well. That suddenly maybe oh, so many changes happen in my life that I'm sitting down and I'm able to like really not fully understand or not fully really take what poetry is, but being in the room for people who are expressing themselves that way yeah. is um, a massive, um, a massive bonus to me as well. So I think like I'm not doing the the worn out way of auditioning consistently, but I am learning and I am growing as a person mm. and I'm growing, I feel as an artist as well. And I don't, and I feel like in my own personal sense to get where I want to be, um, I do feel if this goes the way it goes, which I feel it was, will, that not only will my career benefit, but I feel the career of people who are there week in, week out will benefit because we've got a core group of incredibly talented people who have not been given their dues yet. Yes. Uh, where can people find you on social media, not my friend? It's a sort of a guerrilla organization. You're sort of popping up all over different parts of London at the moment. But what's the best way to keep in touch with the yes. Irish Creative Collective in London? Uh, the best way to find us is at the Irish Creative Collective on Instagram. And that's all we have on social media at the moment. But we do up there update that pretty regularly. We do have a website hopefully coming before Christmas and uh, we will set up other social medias. But if you want to contact us about anything, whether you're a creative in London and you're looking for an outlet, just email irishcreativecollective at gmail.com. That was so professional, Joe. That's really not like you. I'm joking. Uh, one of the major things that we would like to do in the future is to come to London and to be at one of your events and maybe do a podcast from the from there. But for now, thank you so much, Joe O'Neill. Uh, you're always welcome, Phil. And thank you so much for having me on. It's genuinely all, always a pleasure. And thank you for giving me a platform to talk about what I love. So thank you so much. We're is the wonderfully talented Joe O'Neill there and uh, that was recorded in London where the Irish Creative Collective had a bit of a trad session there during the week. Uh, Joe counting them in there to, uh, that was Glenn Hansard and uh, Marketa Irigliotta I'm going to guess at and their Oscar winning song from a few years ago called Falling Slowly from the movie Once. Uh, so brilliant to hear, brilliant to see what was going on there. There's a load of videos floating around on Joe's social media. If you're a Man United fan as well, he does these brilliant videos these like you know it's basically him playing two different characters about Manchester United and uh, if you're into that if you're into football it's a really funny guy but yeah and if you're in London and if you're any sort of creative person or if you're just looking for people to hang out with uh, go find them on social media uh, re rewind a little bit there find out where they are on social media and go and become part of that Lads, this is a listener-supported podcast. We're doing the Blind Boy thing, right? If you don't know who Blind Boy is, he has a hugely successful podcast, way more successful than this one for now, right? But uh, the idea is that all the podcasts I do come out on something called the Our Man in Stockholm podcast feed. So there's about four different podcasts, and the Global Gale is one of them. All the podcasts are always free, right? I'm not the kind of person who puts up a paywall. Patreon, everybody else tell me, oh, you have to put up a paywall. It has to be exclusive content. That's not the way we're going 
going to do. And you know why? Because I was once poor and abroad, right? When I moved to Greece in 1991, I didn't have two pennies to rub together, myself and Carlo Driscoll. And somebody, you know, we had no access to Irish news. We had no access to anything. There was no internet. There was no nothing. When I moved to Sweden in 1999, it took a long time for me to establish myself. And if I didn't have the internet to be able to read the papers and maybe listen a little bit to the RTE player, I couldn't have done it, right? So the idea is that there's no barrier. Money is no barrier to enjoying this content. As long as you have a little bit of access to the internet, you'll be able to listen to these podcasts for free. And I'll say it now, they'll always be free, right? They'll always be free. But if you happen to have a few, Bob, feel free to throw it in every month on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Stockholm. And there's plenty of people out there like me, good self, who have a five a month, five euros, five dollars uh, to spare. Please do throw it in there because the more people we get supporting the podcast, the more podcasts can be made, the more time I can spend on them. And ultimately, I'd love to be getting out and about and seeing the Irish community abroad. Now, I'm lucky enough to travel as a journalist, but uh, it would be nice to be able to go to certain places like our good friends in New Zealand and Philadelphia and all that kind of thing. But we can't do that until we get to a scale where this thing is is looking after itself, you know. So go to patreon.com, Arrowman in Stockholm, pledge a five a month. Feel free to pledge more if you'd like to, to bequeath me your fortune when you pass away that's also okay and if you happen to have a big global company and you think yeah this is something worth supporting it's worth supporting an initiative for the irish global community abroad well then you can get in touch with philip at ablana.se that's philip at ablana.se and support the podcast that way but like i say it will always be free so you as a listener you don't have to pay great if you can pay also great if we can find other ways of making this turn around and you know what i'm open to suggestion as well if you know of a better way to pull in a few bob to keep a podcast going feel free to get in touch on social media that kind of thing you will find at global gale podcast on instagram there's a facebook page these things are published to linkedin under my profile and uh, so you'll find it wherever you go do feel free to share them now a couple of weeks ago as i mentioned about travel there i was lucky enough to be in las vegas a few weeks ago and i had a chance to run into a very dear friend of mine and i don't see her on that often but what i do it's always great crack right because she's from county mayo she's an absolutely outstanding fiddle player right now take the best fiddle player you know and she's just magnificent tremendous player can play absolutely anything under the sun but she is also the production coordinator for a heavy rock band one of the biggest rock bands in the world called Def Leppard her name is Sinead Madden and when I was in Las Vegas I was only there for four or five days but it just so happened that Def Leppard and Motley Crue and all these other rock acts were in town playing at the Allegiant Stadium there which is this huge cornflake bowl like 80 90,000 people there and I was able to go to the gig and I was able to see her doing our thing sitting in our little office backstage uh, organizing everything and when i say organizing everything i mean organizing everything so uh and after that then she was going on tour with another band called a british band called gorillas so the day after the show or two days after the show we decided we'd meet up and sit down we've known each other for years we played in a band we played loads of music together back in ireland but like i say we don't see each other very often but i wanted to catch up with her simply because she is the irish woman who spends, you know, 11 out of the 12 months of the year on the road keeping one of the biggest rock bands that are going, touring. And it's just, it's an amazing story. Sure, here it is for you now. Jared Martin, paint the picture. Where are we sitting? We are sitting in Las Vegas, in, in a hotel, obviously. The Platinum. The Platinum, it's very posh here. 
It's it's lovely. I don't get to play stay in places like this now, but no. somebody's looking after you. And uh, tell the good people why you are here. I just finished the stadium tour 2022 with Def Leppard and Motley Crue. We did a, a summer run all stadiums throughout the uh, the US. How on earth did you wind up at that job? <laughs> How on earth do I wind up in any job? You, you, had, you had that sort of thousand yard, oh, you were their man stared. I don't, even, I don't even know if I can explain this. Like, but. Well, once upon a time, um, so being a musician, I always wanted to learn the other side of the business. And I sent an email back in 2011 to a production manager that used to tour around the, around the world. And I said, I'd be a deadly PA, can I have a job? Mm. So he rang me up and he offered me Def Leppard. So I've been, uh, been with Def Leppard since 2012. Uh, took a hiatus in 2017 and then came back in 2018 and that's how I ended up on a stadium tour with Motley Crue and Def Leppard. Because <laughs> yeah, like, it's kind of unusual to be a fiddle player from Mayo and wind up working with Def Leppard, right? <laughs> it's kind of unusual. I'm not, I'm not rude to point that out, surely. <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely. I mean, I never thought that I would end up doing these massive stadium shows with an amazing band yeah. um, and, and just, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I don't know how I ended up being a fiddle player from Mayo on a stadium tour with Def Leppard. What, what's the job, right? Because you were kind enough to put me on the guest list the other night there. So I was swanning around the place, you know, a bottle of water in my hand, watching Poison, <laughs> having a great time. As and you do. were basically up the fucking wall for most of the <laughs> evening. So what is the job in general of the production coordinator? It's really, it's really hard to explain what a production coordinator does because it's a bit of everything. Yeah. Um, it's, it's primarily logistics for crew, hotels, flights, um, looking after the day-to-day -day running. So I would have runners that would be floated out with some money in the morning. They would run around and do stuff for whatever we need for band, crew. Um, so you have to run them. Then you have to liaise with the venue to make sure that everybody has what they want in terms of furniture, you know, towels, office uh, furniture, set up the office in the morning, um, send out laundry. I mean, it's, there's a massive list that goes on, do accounts in the evening. Mm. You know, I mean, it's just, it's never ending. Yeah. Now this is, you know, the gig at the, uh, what's it called, the Allegiant Stadium here in Las mm -hmm. Vegas. Like, how many people were in there the other night? Like 80,000? Lots. Lots of people. <laughs> it's a lot it's, I didn't get the final number, but it, there was a huge, it's a huge stadium, yeah. as you saw. Um, new build, and I mean, I was even there last night, and it was, I was just blown away by the amount of people. Because at, at our show, I didn't actually get out front to yeah. see what the stadium was like. So last night I was in there watching Imagine Dragons and Macklemore, amazing gig. Um, but the sheer volume of people in there it was just phenomenal. Yeah, because like you have everybody in the stands, and then you have everybody down the pitch as well. Like, and it's all very organised, like the yeah, seats absolutely. down the pitch. Yeah, But there must like it was a phenomenal amount of people. It's a lot different from the gigs and barnstormers that you and I used to play. Like, so I haven't heard that venue in years. Yeah, oh my god! You're probably delighted to hear it. If there's people listening, they're like, oh Jesus, that's the kind of thing that we're doing. Like, but <laughs> when it comes to that, like you know, do you do you miss playing, or are you just as happy to be the spider on the web here, running the whole show for Def Leppard? If if I'm being honest, my soul misses. My soul misses the playing, you know, and I die a little every day. But the production side of thing is phenomenal. It's an amazing job. Yeah. It's uh, and I love it. Um, but I do miss the performer side of me, mm. you know. So there has to be, there hasn't been a balance between production and performing, mm. because the production it's not just something that you do when you're on the road. There's always the pre. Uh, you know, the planning and the, the, planning, yeah. the setting up the hotels, the logistics, mm. you know, I mean, because the stadium tour was cancelled in 2020, obviously due to COVID. Um, and then it was supposed to run in 2021, but it was cancelled again. So, I mean, it, I, a year out, I would be booking the hotels, 
mm. and doing all that. So there's an awful lot of pre-planning, and then after the tour, there's a there's there's more planning to mm. do the next stuff, which is South America, Europe, and things like that. So there's not a, a huge amount of time mm. to be creative. So by the time you're you catch up on sleep, <laughs> you're <laughs> on to the next thing. <laughs> I was going to say, which is never <laughs> apparently in this world. You know. But do you, yeah. do you have your fiddle with you when you travel with Def Leppard? I did initially. I mean, I used to bring it out on the first couple of tours, but I was never playing it because it was just it was just another thing to carry. Yeah. And then by the time we would finish a show day, I mean, these show days we were getting up at 4 a.m. and going to bed at 3 a.m. So 23 hour days and then rolling into the next city and then having to work uh, on because my days off will be non show days as opposed to. Mm not actually doing any work. Um, so it just, you don't really have the time mm. and your body is tired. So to be creative, you need to be in a, in a certain headspace. Yeah. And you know, how do you do that? Like 23 hours a day. Now I know because like, <laughs> it's just one of those things that you start working, you know, and it just, it just never stops, you know? Yeah. But I think normal people who go to work at nine in the morning, come home at five, they go, how on earth does she do that? Because that's <laughs> not, not just one, that could be two or three days in a row at some point yeah. on the road. Uh, we, we, we did a couple of back-to-backs, which was like on an hour of sleep. Um, I think the two hours sleep was the, the most I was getting most nights. Yeah. Just, uh, just because of the way that everything was running. Um, you just keep going. You might nod off in the chair in the office <laughs> every two minutes. But Nobody's <laughs> going to give out to you if you do that, though, are they? But, you, but your body, you, you adjust. So you get to a point where you have a slump in the day and you think, oh, God. So you get up and you walk around, you, you, you know, go to catering, have some food, mm. and then you come back and you're energized for another few hours. And the, but you just, because it's so busy, you just, you just keep going. Mm. What's it like to work on something? Because the tour you're just coming off now, uh, Motley Crue headlined the other night, huge band here in the States. Def Leppard, huge band in the States. Poison, uh -huh. also huge. Yeah. And Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Now that's like, it's almost like a festival lineup that you're putting out it, there. It felt like a festival show every day. Yeah. It felt like we were loading in a festival show every single day. So, you know, you load in early a.m. So we used to load in at uh, 6 a.m. and then be ready for doors at 3 or 3.30. And then the first band uh, would go on at 4 and then you'd have Joan Jett. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was just a revolving door, yeah. you know, and the changeover times were only half an hour. So you had to get these big bands yeah. on, especially Motley De Def Leppard, the, the set and stuff like that, just to change over. Yeah. It's huge. I saw Poison's drum kit almost <laughs> running away freely <laughs> down a ramp the other day and three blokes <laughs> running after going, fucking hell, what's going on here? <laughs> I know these things happen. I'm amazed. I mean, we've, we've had, we've had a few few locals get their foot run over by the forklift or just weren't paying attention yeah. getting squished by cases there was always something mm -hmm. <laughs> happening how, you know how many people do you travel with right when you four those four big bands what's mm -hmm. the entire traveling party or do you not give a shit about them are you only concerned no, no i mean we, we we care about the openers we make sure that they have rooms yeah we we do we do but um primarily my my concern will be def leppard def leppard crew and then we have Universal Crew, which are shared between Def Leppard and Motley. Mm. So um, we would look after them as well. Yeah. So but there was about, for Def Leppard Motley, we were looking at 100 and maybe 115, 120 people. They have to be fed and housed mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. Have to be pointed in the right direction Absolutely. to go and do their job at the yeah. right time. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And if that goes wrong, somebody calls you. Somebody calls me. There's always people coming into the office because they need stuff. So if you can imagine, if one person comes in and they say, can you do this? there's normally a chain reaction. Yeah. So it's not as simple as just asking for one thing. We'll say if somebody says, oh, I need to change uh, you know, my hotel date to check out on such a date. So that would create a chain reaction to, well, 
if they're checking out on that date, that means their travel plans need to change. So you, you just have a little yeah. rolling thing. So you, you can imagine if 100 people come in and ask for one thing that creates a... So it's, there's always something. That's that where you get the 23-hour days from, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I mean, as production, you're first in and last out. Yeah. So you have to wait until the truck, the last door in the truck closes before you kind of go, okay, are we done? And then you either shower and go to the bus or you shower and you go back to a hotel, depending on the transport. And so. is mo are most nights then spent on the bus going from this city to the next city kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And Crew would, would travel uh, after the show every night to the and next place. how much sleeping is done? Because rock and roll tours here in the States always have this vibe of, oh, you know, everybody's partying, taking drugs and everything else like that. As far as I can say, most <laughs> people are perception. sleeping. They just find somewhere dry and just go asleep. Basically. That's it. I mean, people were hanging uh, hammocks under the stage and stuff like that to get. And when we had the buses, so we would have touring buses, and when we had them, people, uh, if they were finished in the departments, would have to go and have a snooze for a couple of hours, mm. which was lucky for them. But production doesn't really get to do that because you have to be in the office all day yeah. um, and stuff like that, which is fine. Um, but yeah, we would roll into the next city. It just depends on how the, the journeys. Yeah. You know, if it was an eight-hour journey, it was great. You know, you'd roll into the, into the next city, you'd get at least six hours sleep. Yeah. And then I would always get up an hour before we get there to make sure the hotel was ready and had the keys ready because the last thing you want is a load of roadies in the lobby, you know, taking out their dirty laundry and opening their suitcases and stuff like that. So I always advise the hotel to be ready <laughs> so that they don't have that. For their own sake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this, you know. this platoon of lads yeah. in t-shirts and shorts coming in and fucking yeah, exactly. stinking. You know? I mean, we had two very, very long journeys. We had 15 hours on the bus. Oh. So we had double drivers for that, which is, which is great. But I mean, I think I, I stayed in bed for at least 12 of them. Just, but, but that's the thing it's you like know. being in the army because you know when you have the chance to sleep sleep when you have the oh, chance absolutely. to eat it doesn't matter if you're not tired or you're not fucking hungry yeah, you just you, do it yeah, yeah you don't know when it's going to happen again that that's said it. I've seen a few comforts of home in your little makeshift office <laughs> because we've met before in Madison Square Garden and in Sweden when you were working there Certainly, yeah. bit of Barney's tea there in the counter oh, I even stole the tea bags because they, they left them behind <laughs> and I have them here in the hotel but yeah no we do a kettle setup. You yeah. have to have the tea and then we started doing high noon tea and everything because the caterers and you know, the cucumber sandwiches and stuff because there's a few English people on the tour too. So we used to, yeah, we'd serve the china and everything. It was, it, you know, just keep it, keep it funny. But that's yeah. a bit, I suppose you have to do that when you're going to be on the road for so long. Is every day the same or is every day completely different? Every day has the same setup. Yeah. But then you don't really know what's going to happen during the day. Mm. So you just, you just roll with it. And every day like, has its own challenges and things like that, that we just, you know, we, normally we'd liaise with the venue and the Live Nation, uh, local Live Nation, and they would, they would make anything happen that we need to happen. Yeah. So you just, you ask, yeah. you know. How easy a band or Def Leppard to work with? Amazing. So easy. Do you have to say that to you? No. Joe, Joe, <laughs> if you're listening, Joe. <laughs> She's grand. Let us say it to you. Yeah, they're all, they're all great. No, they are. They, do you know what? I have to say... It's, um, they're an amazing five, five guys, yeah. you know, and they're all, they all have their own unique uh, personalities and differences, and we all have different relationships with them and stuff yeah. like that, but they're just phenomenal to work with, yeah. you know, and I'm not just saying that because they're my bosses and they pay my wages <laughs> and they keep me busy, yeah. but they are the best, um, the organization is amazing to work for, you know, and it's, it's one thing that I, I just love working for them. Was it, was it Rick Savage, the bass player? He always wanted the Wi-Fi set up as soon as he got to, to the venue. That was his thing. Himself and Viv. Viv as well. Yeah. Always needed the Wi-Fi set up. But we have, we have Wi-Fi set ups. It's always, it's always worked out. And, and they're happy enough then once they Absolutely. get that kind of thing. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. 
uh, and Joe, is he the standard English rock singer, you know, <laughs> needs to be driven around in a Bentley and sort of, you know, taken care of? Not at all. He's far from it, isn't he? He's just far the nicest bloke. I tell you, they're all so down to earth. Yeah. Like, at the end of the day, they are human beings. You know, I mean, they are rock stars, yeah. for sure. Um, and it's great to see what they're doing and things like that. But they're also uh, very human, mm. very approachable and just wonderful people. If I was to ask Joe about you now, what would he say about you? God knows. <laughs> <laughs> Depends well, on you, what he did. Well, Joe and I, uh, you know, it's funny because musically speaking, Joe got me to play on his Down and Outs. That was after project. I convinced him to do it in Sweden. Was it now? You remember, I was looking for money. I was looking for a like, commission off that. Then I realised you weren't being paid, so I just dropped that one. Like, you know. I know. When Joe Elliott asked you to do something musically, you're like, okay, yeah, sure, fair no enough. problem. No, I mean, because he'd heard that I, I play fiddle. He came into me one day in the office, and uh, I, I remember we were in Tampa. We were doing an amphitheatre at the time. And it was hot, sticky Florida day. And he came in with his laptop, and he said, do you think you could learn this and play it and record it? And he played me violence by Mott the Hoople. Okay. Which is this crazy, crazy track. And I was sitting there going, yeah, no problem, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. I was going, oh my God, I can't do this. <laughs> That's madness. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no problem. And then there was nothing for a while. And then about six months later and stuff like that, it was January and he sent me a message. He goes, yeah, we're going to record that track. He said, um, he said, do you think you could, could do it? And I was like, sure, no problem. So I was going, oh my God, because I, you know, I'm a traditional fiddle player, but yeah. I am classically trained as well, so I, I can do both genres. Yeah. But this was crazy stuff into fifth and sixth position on the fiddle and moving around and doing all sorts of things. And I was like, okay, this is going to take a little bit of time. So I had a bit of time. So I learned the track by ear yeah. from whatever I was hearing on the, um, on the original recording. And I was like, oh, this is crazy. So learned it and then he rang me up and he said oh by the way we've taken it down a semitone and I was like <gasps> thanks mate yeah yeah so I mean initially <laughs> it was in the key of A and I mean anybody who plays a stringed instrument it went down to A flat yeah and I was like holy god yeah you know I was like how am I going to do this because your ear is trained to a certain pitch with your fingers yeah so you get very comfortable in positionings and stuff like that and you don't like, even okay. have to look at your fingers then, exactly so, yeah. so you, you just do it and I was like oh god what am I going to do so I detuned the fiddle by semitone so the, the open strings went down. Yeah. And then I had to train my ear to say, you're not out of tune. Yeah. You're just playing at a different pitch. Just, just roll with this here. So I, so I had to, re like, and it was, it was just like, I was like, oh my God. So I had to, I had to adjust my ears to kind of go, you're doing this fine. Yeah. So then I went into the studio and recorded it and it worked out a treat. So then we went on tour in 2014 and I got up on stage and played violence every night with, <laughs> with the band. And did tour managing and all the rest of it and stuff like that. So, I mean, creatively, myself and Joe, you know, it, it's an honor to be asked to do stuff like that of with course, him. And yeah. I mean, it's Joe Elliott. Yeah. You know, so great fun. It's amazing. I mean, obviously, Joe had a long history of sort of living in Ireland. Is he still living in Ireland? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, he'd be into But, like, Irish music was never his thing. It was always this sort of 70s glam rock, David Bowie, uh -huh. Mott the Hoople, those kinds of things. So, yeah. There doesn't seem to be a natural sort of um, overlap between your traditional Irish or no. classical background yeah. and what Joe has done. So, yeah. uh, you know, what kind of conversations do you have with him about music? <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, he wouldn't know a huge amount about folk world. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would send him recommended recordings like Michael McGoldrick, all those guys. And I go, you've got to listen to these guys. They're amazing mm. um, and stuff like that. But he, he would send me stuff to listen to and, you know, share stuff and, you know. We just have this back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, you know, he's the rock star. He knows everything, you know, Sinead, you should listen But he to does, musically. I mean, he, he's an encyclopedia of music knowledge. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, you could sit there and, like, I'm out of my depth talking to him sometimes because he's talking about all these things that, you know, I wouldn't know anything about. And then I'd go and Google them and have a look at them and listen to them and stuff like that. So, he, I mean, he is an encyclopedia mm. of music. That's all he does. He lives, eats, breathes music. Mm. And when you get off the road then, is mm -hmm. he sort of on to you every second day going, oh, I can't wait to get back out again. Oh, we should do this. We should do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's it. Though. So like, fucking, I don't want to see you for six months. Well, no, I mean, anybody Delete who gets off the road, I mean, you're, you're like you've, everybody has a normal life outside this. I mean, touring is a bubble. You know, it's not real. Yeah. It's it's a it's an artificial environment that's created due to the due to a job yeah. basically, and you have to realize that when when that job ends, you go home to your normal life mm -hmm. if you want to call it normal life, you know. So you go back and you pay your bills and you have to cook for yourself and you know. You're How miserable! <laughs> is I know that? you're not running into catering to be served, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So I mean, yeah, I mean, so when for me anyway, when I go home, the last thing I want to be do is is bugging people that have families and yeah. you know so I leave everybody alone and if they get in touch great and I mean we do meet up with Joe and stuff like that so he's always like if you're passing come in for a cup of tea yeah you know so there's always that open invitation mm. but at the same time you kind of think well everybody's at home now so let's just yeah leave we're off now kind of thing yeah do you find that I always find when I come back from the World Cup or the Olympics or something like that it's a similar situation you go in and it literally was a bubble at the Winter Olympics in China recently and you go to, and then you come back, and I always find it like it can be kind of empty the first few days. Yeah. And then you know the people that you live with, you know, my wife and kids don't, they haven't been there, you yeah. know, and they don't understand what we've just done. There's no context. Yeah. No shared context. And their anymore. life is is going on as normal. Yeah, exactly. They're doing they're their everyday routine, and yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I was I was saying this to a few new people that were touring, and I said, when you come off this, I said you've just been surrounded by 200, 300 people a day mm. for the last four or five months. I said, so when you go home the silence is deafening yeah you know the the text stop the email stop and then you have to adjust to being back on your own yeah and i know that sounds like I, I don't know if people would ever experience that but it's it's a weird sensation of of going home to nothing yeah you know and does it happen to you overnight now i know you were saying that uh, before we started recording there because th it was uh, 36 odd 40 odd hours ago was the last show of the tour right yeah. you still have stuff to get out of the country like it's yes. going back to Los Angeles a lot yes. of kids, that kind of thing. Yeah. is that all done now so is it no. now that the silence starts no no it's not finished yet because I, I mean there's always the after effect so I have crew movements happening at the moment I have crew going into LA today because yeah. the band did a private show yesterday in Dallas so the crew are going back to where we store all our stuff in LA hang so on a second sort that out. The, the band and some of the crew went to Dallas they did a mm -hmm. private show there, yeah. and now they're going back to LA again. Mm -hmm. It's no wonder you're worn out, girl. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of movement, so I, I'm looking after them remotely to make yeah. sure that their hotels, flights, and everything are, are taken care of, yeah. rental cars. You know, it's just, it's all to go. And do the boys in the band then, they'll just head off from Los Angeles back to, to Europe then, yeah? Yep, they're all done there, so they'll go to wherever they need to go to. And that's all sorted out? Mm-hmm. Be, that's the tour manager's job, mm. so. And, and you're waiting here until the 13th when you're going out on another tour. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was, uh, I was chatting to the lovely Dave Fortune who works for Live Nation, and, and we were talking about what's happening next. And he said he was going out in gorillas, and he looked at me and he said, "Actually, they're looking for a PC mm -hmm. production coordinator." And I was like, "I said, well, I'm not doing anything after this, even though my plan was to go and have a week in New York, and then fly home, mm. and then work from home." Um, and I said, well, I'm not really doing anything after this. And he goes, well, do you want to do it? I was like, sure. So he reached out to their production manager 
Um, we had a chat, so they said, do you want a few days after the stadium? And I said, if I could have two, just to, <laughs> you know, catch up on some sleep. Um, so, yeah, I fly out on the 13th to join up with them in Portland, Oregon. Well, mm. And you don't know the band? You've never worked with them before? No. Nope. Don't so know the people you're working with? It's a whole new situation, yeah. How does that feel going into that? It's like the first day of school again. It, it is like the first day of school. So you just, got, but, you know, uh, at this stage, I know what my job entails. I know what is expected of me. Mm. Um, we've had a talk about what, because every organization runs differently. Mm. So I, I won't go in and, you know, try and put my stamp on it. I will use all their templates and their day sheets um, and stuff like that and just go in and hopefully just take over and they won't even notice. Mm. Um, fine. How big would their tour be if you compare it to Def Leppard's? Because I'm, I'm so they're doing arenas, hmm. which is which is kind of a step down, we'd say, and the day wouldn't be as um, intense. Yeah, because uh, stadiums are they're just huge. It's it's a whole other level of of production. I actually meant to ask you that question. How much stuff is already there? Do they have like a PA and lighting that you can plug into stages, <laughs> that kind of thing? Or do you have to roll absolutely everything in? No, it's definitely not a barnstormers plug in. <laughs> Hop up on the stage and here we go. Here's That's a jack. All you're allowed Stick to that use. in. Yeah. Get to work. You're on <laughs> with, your, with your four lights. Um, no, but I mean, there would be a steel build. For every stadium tour, there's a steel build, which will go in at least four or five days prior to the thing. So, I mean, if you think of stadiums, depending if it's a ball, uh, baseball or football over here. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, all the grass has to be covered yeah. with or else rolled out. I mean, yesterday, um, there's two stadiums, actually. I think it was Phoenix and the Allegiant in Vegas. They actually roll the grass outside. The, the whole pitch. The whole rolled. pitch yeah. rolls <laughs> on rails outside it's wild isn't it's it? well, like when you think about it it's like it's like and they water it and everything outside to make sure that it's it stays you know because you're dealing with extreme heats here too and stuff like that and i mean it hit 106 in vegas the day we arrived in yeah, you know it, it was massive heat but thankfully the, the gig was inside yeah. <laughs> wasn't outside but i mean there's a steel build which means that the staging goes in so the stage is in place um side screen video walls are in place by the time we roll in mm. and then we have an advanced team that go in that make sure that the certain bits and pieces are preloaded in and then on arrival we would load in the lights mm. audio video and build the whole show again so it all goes in and it all comes down but the stage is in place when we get there it's it's the most amazing the, like the scale of the thing is what freaks me out sometimes you see this like you know gopro time-lapse footage and you yes. go this is the most amazing thing i've ever seen yeah. and yet there are venues as i'm sure you know here where they'll have ice hockey sometimes they'll have an ice hockey game at lunchtime and then a basketball game at like 8 p.m yeah and they'll cover the the ice, ice I just, hockey yeah. i just don't know how it works like it's yeah. crackers you know absolutely but the, the arenas are the arenas a little bit different then are they yeah they are i mean load-in wouldn't be as early yeah you know uh, doors are slightly later um, and capacity is about 10, 12,000 maybe, or a bit more than that, 15 maybe. Does that feel more manageable for you in your job? Yeah, the, the arenas are more uh, designed for shows. Yeah. So if you, if you think you're going into a stadium that wouldn't necessarily, especially baseball stadiums, wouldn't necessarily cater for bands. Mm. So there's a, a shortage of rooms for everybody. So you have to put a plan B in place. So the openers like Joan Jett and Poison may not get dressing rooms inside but they'd have trailer facilities outside okay so you just have to make sure there's enough room for everybody and then you know say if Def Leppard needed four or five rooms they might only get three so you mm. have to make it work yeah you know depending on the like you can't redesign a building 
Yeah. So you have to make whatever you're given of the day. But the newer bills have lots of room and space and stuff like that. But arenas are designed for shows. Yeah. So you go in, you've ample amount of rooms backstage, you know where everything is, and it's a shorter walk. So I mean, stadiums, you're walking, you could walk up to 30, 40,000 steps a day. It's mad, isn't Just, it? yeah. Just Unless you have golf carts, which I, I do love a golf cart. <laughs> Has to be said. <laughs> I heard it was some man rubbing your golf cart the other day. They shall remain nameless, you know. I know, I know. They certainly did, and I used to, I used to have to try and find my golf carts. Going, where's my golf carts? So I'd always start in one particular pace, and of course, there was my golf carts. Vivian was saying I should be a NASCAR driver. You know, <laughs> at this stage, like, right here we go. He was like, he was like, I think, I think you like the speed, you know. I was like, we were in um, SoFi Stadium, which is the new LA. Uh, yes, yeah. beautiful building a really really lovely building um, designed with space in mind for shows and mm. things like that beautiful building but they had golf carts that didn't they had a high and a low limiter yeah you know because golf carts are at a limit you can only go like 12 yeah you know so you're like eh, you no know. matter how hard you put the no foot matter, down like, it doesn't know. matter like you can floor it you know and i'm a little short so i have to kind of scoot down the seat for my for my foot to push the pedal all the way down to the thing so you know and i mean so i i found the high limiter yep. i think i hit 30 miles an hour going down the ramp oh for one stage God. i was like this is obviously i didn't have any band members in the thing i would never drive recklessly <laughs> with band members <laughs> You know, so yeah, what we used to do with golf cars, we just go up and collect the band, bring them in yeah. and stuff like that. Because it's a bit of a walk. Uh, is that your job? You drive them around the place, do you? Pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> myself and Chris, because we're in the building yeah. and we know where they're going. So oh, they would roll they up in the buses there. and, you know, so whoever's ready to come off, we would take them into the building and drive them. Because it's quite a walk, you know, yeah. I mean, the last thing you want them to do is walk that far to their dressing rooms. So yeah, we would just bring them in the golf carts mm. and stuff like that. So yeah. You mentioned there about there not being dressing rooms and sometimes there's trailers and that kind of thing. Is it often that you would see like somebody throw their toys out in the pram and do the diva thing when you're on these tours? No yes, names. Yes and no. <laughs> no, I would never do names. Yes <laughs> and no, but I mean, they all know. I mean, you know, if something is, is extremely bad, then we would email them, give them a heads up going, hey guys, it's not, it's not the prettiest today. Yeah. Um, but they, they don't, like they always have a certain setup because we have a couple of dressing room wardrobe people that make it, similar every day yeah yeah so what we would do is the ugly spaces we just pipe and drape yeah and then put our own stamp on it when they come in so that everything is familiar mm. so we would carry uh, furnishings and things like that yeah um, their dressing room setup is always the same you know so they, they have they walk into the same idea same environment every time every kind day of thing, yeah yeah so no. never we we like i know for def leopard they would never throw their toys out of the farm no i mean they just other acts have certainly kind of reacted to, to, to not having uh, the facilities should we say yeah yeah um when you get you know like a band of that size on the road you know how do they deal with security because there's obviously going to be you know i think i told you the other day i was just in a random diner <laughs> and someone was talking about how excited she was to be going to the meet and greet yeah. do they do a lot of that kind of thing where they press the flesh with fans or you know do they yeah they, they they always have a meet and greet Hmm. And it's always, uh, like it always amazes me, is that it's it's has been over 60, 70 people every day wow. for Def Leppard for meet and greet. Um, yeah, and it's, it's amazing. They, they do a check-in at around 2, 3 o'clock. They would COVID test, and then they would come in and meet the band. And obviously with COVID, the meet and greet was slightly different than it would be normally. Because yeah. you don't physically get to shake hands with the band or touch the band or, you know. Hmm. So, I mean, but yeah, they, they do meet and greets every show day. Hmm. What's, yeah. the, what's the weirdest thing that's happened to you on the road? 
<laughs> I've no idea. Everything's weird. <laughs> You're just saving up for the book, are you? <laughs> What's yeah, it say for this The book tour? comes out in 10 years. Um, <laughs> we'll have to wait until everybody <laughs> dies before we can publish it. We'll take the stadium tour now. What was the one thing that stuck out? God, that was wild. I'd, honestly, I don't know. Every day, I mean, it's, it's funny. You kind of get into this, like, unless somebody says something that triggers a men- memory. Yeah. I, I tend to find that I just, you know, it's filed away. and that's You just walk through it and that's the end yeah, of it. That's yeah, that's the end of it, you know. I mean, we'd have some funny moments with runners that you'd ask them to do something and they'd bring back something completely bizarre. Yeah. And you look at them going, that's not really what I asked for, but okay, <laughs> we'll make it work. <laughs> we'll make this work, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I, like, I mean, weird things happen every day, all day. Mm. But, but to pinpoint anything, you were just like, people wouldn't, like, we actually said the other day, people, you couldn't write this, or you couldn't make some of this stuff up. Yeah, you know, people I mean, just if wouldn't you, believe you. They wouldn't believe you. They'd think, you, yeah, you're just exaggerating. So you just kind of, you just laugh at it and kind of go, okay, nobody is going to believe me. I tell them what happened. <laughs> you just file it away. <laughs> As I say, that log about in the book later. Exactly. I, th- I think one of the last times we met when we were over here in America was, were you working with Mary J. Blige for a while? Yeah, I, I, I was production coordinator with Maxwell. Oh, Maxwell, yeah. That's what and Maxwell and Mary J. Blige did a co-headline. Yeah. Uh, which was phenomenal. I mean, she's, she's something else. Yeah. And, uh, and I love Maxwell. And I, I'd worked with Maxwell quite a lot on and off from 2012. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the last time I think I think we met up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In New York and Madison Square Garden of all yeah, places. What other fabulous. acts have you worked with down through the years? Because I know it's mostly Def Leppard, but you've sort of done a few guest appearances on a few other. Yeah, shows. I mean, I I, uh, I, uh, I was working a lot with. Um, I mean, it's it's bizarre. You kind of dip in and you dip out. Yeah. Of, of working, with. it's mainly been Def Leppard because they keep me busy. Yeah. You know, it's and then Maxwell for a while, um, jumping onto Gorillas. But I mean, in the Irish music scene, you know, I used to work with Clannad and, and all those, yeah. all those wonderful people. And was things it, like what, what was the band you were in Stockholm with? Because we met in Stockholm as well. Yes, uh, Picture This, we were an Irish band. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I was tour manager for them for a while. I did a year with them. Um, we were playing, supporting Niall Horn actually. That's right, Stockholm. Yeah. Do you remember? It's huge. Yeah, it was, it was great. Like, Niall's brilliant yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, Picture This were great as well. So I did, did a lot of stuff with them, stadium tour in Ireland, yeah. which was, I know Ireland is small, but St- stadium yeah, is the stadium. St- exactly, yeah, that's <laughs> the thing. How many Irish people do you bump into in this business? Is there a lot of road crew? There used to be years ago, there was a handful of sort of old salts who would turn up on all sorts of weird tours. Yeah, it's amazing. People always go, do you know such and such is Irish? <laughs> look at them going, actually, funny enough, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I would try to deny it, but I can't. <laughs> I know. So, do you know, Pat, I do. Yeah. I do, I know him well. But yeah, I mean, there is a, an awful lot of, of Irish people. I mean, the majority of the, the crew that I'm working with at the moment are American, but Def Leppard have their core crew, which contains Irish, mm. Japanese, um, American, uh, English. Mm. You know, so there's a really nice mix. And uh, people like hearing the different accents. So when you go into a building, you know, people like the novelty that you're not actually American. Yeah. So they, they want to talk to you. Which is lovely for a change. If for you're American, they just ignore you. Kind exactly, of thing. you know. But I do, I do often find that my name always um, confuses people. Like, thankfully, Sinead O'Connor made an inroad, you know. Um, so, so they have so some idea of how to pronounce it, but kind of. But I've had some variations, like, and then people won't actually say my name because they're afraid to, you know. And I go into Starbucks, you know, and I'd order some stuff, and they were like, "What's your name?" I'd be like, "Max." <laughs> <laughs> it's I much easier to write Max than to try and spell. And I've had some funny funny spellings of my name when I do say it I can only so imagine. I just I just kind of give up yeah. and of course it's not just America that you go to right you've pretty much been all over the world with Def Leppard right yes such as Japan 
Yeah, I mean, next next year now we have South America. Yep. All over South America, which I'm really looking forward to. Because um, we've done Mexico before and stuff like that. And I've been to Brazil touring with, with other acts. Um, but we do Europe and then Asia as well. We're going to do a world tour next year. Like, it's going to, we're going all over. And how long will that keep you away from Ireland? Um, we start in January. Like, I'm prepping it now. Yeah. Start in January. We'll finish up probably in October next year. That's a hell of a job, all the same. Isn't it just? 20 odd hours a day for It's kind of nice to know what you'll be doing for the next 12 months, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a hell of a job. It's, and is it sort of seven days a week, pretty much no days off kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, you it just can be. When you're, in, when you're in the zone, yeah. There's no such thing as a day off. For, I mean... For 10 months? Mm, there's always something to do. Yeah. You know, like immigration, you have to get immigration out of the way. You have to get... That has to be a pre definitely a few months prior to when you travel and things like that so i'll be working on that um how easy is that because i mean def leopard are one of the biggest bands in the world so you go hey i've got to bring 115 people for def <laughs> leopard so they just go yeah no bother we'll just stamp everything there because it's not just a band it's not just you it's every roadie every crew member yeah, yeah. every runner has to be done like uh -huh. and you have to apply for all those visas and that kind of thing well you kind of well you work with people i mean i there's a great team in place behind yeah. me so i have people i go to that that help yeah um and without them I'd be lost. Yeah. You know, so I rely heavily on, let's say, travel agents, people who do the flights. Yeah. You know, so they're my go-to people. Um, but for immigration, there's certain people that you would obviously call that know what needs to happen and things like that. The biggest problem is locking in the crew, especially now. Um, it's very hard to find crew at the moment. Is it? Yeah. Why yeah. is that? Is it a lot of people gave up during COVID and just went to other well, stuff? Well, COVID people moved on to different jobs. Yeah. And they they kind of enjoyed being at home yeah because you know if you have a family and a home life it's very difficult saying goodbye to your kids and then you know you miss them well, i'd say the in 10 months yeah yeah see you see you when i get back yeah kind of thing so that can be so people people adjusted their lives and did normal things yeah. and then decided not to come back but once music opened up everybody's out yeah so many tours so you've got all the companies struggling to find crew to fill positions yeah so they're training new people in. So it's a, so that's the biggest thing is the, is locking in the crew. Mm. So once you lock in the crew and you have their passport details, you can do whatever you like. <laughs> Send them wherever you want to the world kind of thing, you know? <laughs> and is it like, have you had a hard time finding crew for the Def Leppard shows or would We did initially. I mean, we were still waiting up until about four days before the tour actually started. We, we hadn't filled two audio positions mm. um, on the crew. Uh, you know, so it's just stuff like that. Mm. And does that affect the economics of it then? Would you have a fellow going sort of, you know, nameless price going, well, you'll have to pay me this, otherwise I'm not coming? Some people, some people do that, but generally speaking, it would go through the company. Yeah. So the company would do the deal and then we, we would just get billed back for, yeah, yeah. Know, we would make a deal with the company and then they would make it work within that. They'll find those people within that budget. Exactly, kind of thing, yeah. within that deal and stuff like that. So, but I mean, I, it is a name your price at, at, at times. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, that's the thing about getting good people. I remember one guy where you were working with at one time, and he was about to leave Def Leppard, Def Leppard to go and work for Metallica. Yeah. And it was this, you know, the rest of the crew were giving him grief because he was getting <laughs> poached. But he'd actually committed to that before the Def Leppard. Absolutely, hundred percent. And does that go on a lot that you get people yes. sort of switching out? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you'd have people that, I mean, um, we have a, a tech who works for the Foo Fighters, and unfortunately, the whole, God rest Taylor Hawkins. Yeah. Um, so he became available, and we needed somebody, so he came back into Def Leppard. Yeah. Um, for that and stuff like that. So when if the Foo Fighters go out again next year, he'll probably disappear on that again. Yeah. So there is a revolving door yeah. uh, of roadies, but the core crew for 
Def Leppard thankfully stays the same. Yeah. And in the same way that you know people would know that if Def Leppard are out on the road, well, Sinead Madden's going to be with, with them, so there's probably no point in even asking for her, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, my first, I, I would always go Def Leppard first, you know. That's just they, it. They, they, yep. I mean, they look after us, mm. you know, and it's a wonderful job. And what, what happens when you're not on the road? Do they give you a few quid every month to keep you on the sort of retainer, or is it just to just cross their fingers and hope for the best that you'll answer the call when it comes? <laughs> well, that, that's the thing about being self-employed. Yeah. You never really know where the next job is coming in. But, I mean, Leopard have been very generous. Like So, I mean, I would be on, you know, you'd be on payroll a couple of weeks prior to the tour going out to make sure that you know, all the work that you're doing yeah. is covered and things like that. But, I mean, there, I, I work for uh, Peter Aiken at home as well, who's a local promoter. Yeah. So I'd be a promoter rep at home. Yeah. So I've been doing that on and off during the pandemic, actually. I did a lot of it in, in uh, 2021. Mm stuff like that so there is work out there but I mean I'm, I don't actively look for work so if something comes in great yeah if something doesn't come in I'm quite happy just to you, you don't have to worry you can mm -mm. cool your jets and just I wait can. for the next thing to come along like, yep. you know which is a nice position to be in it's fantastic <laughs> I mean Jesus I was I'm, like I'm leaving from Los Angeles tomorrow and I go okay what am I going to do next week and fucking panicking <laughs> and here's Matt and I go yeah I'll do gorillas see what happens I, I don't like generally that. panic about stuff I mean it's funny ever since I was I was young things just fall on my lap yeah I've been very fortunate that I've never really actively had to seek out work yeah I mean I wonder I wonder if I did what would happen I'd be uber busy so it's I mean I have a nice life I have a nice pace mm. and like I said I never actively look for work it just always seems to find me does it ever find you the way that people call you up and go Sinead we need you and your fiddle do you get that anymore like I do yeah I mean I, it's rare you know, um, but I, I do play with a few musicians at home and stuff like that. And they're like, we're, I'm recording an album. Can you come in and do a few tracks? Mm. Which I love. Yeah. You know, because it just, you go in and I just feel like I'm 100% myself. Yeah. You know, whereas, like I said to you, on the road when you're not performing, there's like 10% of you that just, just is not engaged. It, it yeah. just dies that little bit every day. Yeah. Uh, could you ever see yourself going, right, I've done this, say after the tour next year, you know, you get back in October, go, right, I'm going to give this six months, I'm going to do, you know, I mean, you did a great album before. Thank you. That, you know, that, that came out and, you know, I, I was just amazed. I thought the album would sell a million. Like, it was just, it was perfect for the time. <laughs> Thank you, know? you. So if you find any under your bed now, you can send them to the, the, <laughs> the Global Gale podcast. We'll get rid of them for you, you know. But Thanks very much. Do, does Buy one, get one free. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. My new album is called Buy One, Get One Free. But, does that aspiration still exist for you though in music or are you happy with where you've it does it does because you know I mean yeah anybody who's a musician if they're not playing they're yeah there is something missing mm -hmm. and it's not like I'm not being creative at home because I do sit down and I, I compose on the piano and stuff like that but I never seem to I, I, I don't know something is my brain creatively is not quite there yet so I think you need to be in a certain headspace to create something. Oh, you couldn't be doing it in the middle of this madness. Like, no, you know, I was going to ask you, do you write songs on the road? I was going, what <laughs> a stupid question. You know what? I, <laughs> I used to I used to notate down little notes and things like that. I mean, I have, I have scribble books. Yeah. Um, and like in the beginning when it was a little quieter, I would write little lines down and stuff like that and things like that. But I haven't. It's my own fault. I'm, I'm, I need to get out of my own way. Yeah. You know, and it's a phrase I like. You know, it's like, just get out of your own way and things will happen. Yeah. So I need to get out of my own way and make things happen. Mm. Because there is stuff in there. there. There is another album waiting to come out. It just, I just need to do it. Get out of your own way and let get, it come out. Literally. Yeah. Get out of my own way. God, 
do you have uh, the facility at home to record or that kind of thing or yeah i have everything i have no excuse yeah. not to <laughs> um and stuff like that so yeah i mean i have the little you know the setup on the on the laptop and stuff like that but i'm not technologically minded yeah so i wouldn't really like i'd be able to record basic stuff yeah a few demos but i wouldn't be able to you know do what professional people do that do this all the time and things yeah. like that but i do um work with like ronan McHugh is uh the front of house engineer for Def Leppard. He yeah. also runs Joe's studio. Um, and I mean, I have access to that. Mm. So I have no excuse really not to be doing what I want to be doing. Mm. So. How long do you think you'll want to be doing what you're doing with Def Leppard? Because. I don't know. Because you know. the years seem to kind of, uh, they just roll into one. Yeah. You know, and I'm not getting any younger. None of us are, Gail. You know, I know. And you kind of think, well, like, how long do I want to do this for? But it's such a, an amazing job that I'll just keep going. As long as they keep going, I'll keep going. Because yeah. it strikes me that, like, I can't remember, Sweden might have been 2016 when you were there uh, yeah. playing with Uppsala, and I came in. And you're still, when I look at the people around you and how they relate to you, it's mm -hmm. still the same. Nothing yeah. has changed. It's not, you yeah. know, this hell one needs to be got out of here now. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not a whole lot of young people, you know, where we look around and go, fuck, we don't belong here anymore. Like, you still really belong in this situation, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it is amazing. But I don't know, I don't feel my age. I think that's, that's something as well that, that contributes. So I don't, you know, I really don't feel my age. Do you know what it just struck me, actually? Because I noticed the other night that Joe has really embraced the grey, right? So he mm -hmm. doesn't dye his hair or anything else like that. Yep. Does that help, the fact that Joe is older than the two of us? And, you know, that, you know, <laughs> yes. He, he, but he has <laughs> he can keep going, we can keep <laughs> going, you know? <laughs> You'd almost be ashamed not to, you know? But he seems to be very dignified in it. It's not like, I don't, yeah. you know, he doesn't care that he's not, you know, 28 anymore. Yeah, I, th I think the pandemic, I know for me the pandemic was a blessing in disguise because it made everything stop. Yeah. And made you kind of take take stock of everything and, and not be as concerned about, you know, small things and mm. things like that. And, you know, everybody's hair color changed because nobody went to hairdressers and stuff like that. And it's, I, I love Joe's new look. I yeah. mean, that's it. He's He looks great. He looks fantastic. You know, and like you say, I mean, you embrace it. Yeah. You know, there's not that many out there that, w that would do that now. Certainly not in a business like rock and roll. No, you know, like but I think the days of, of hiding the fact that you're going grey or that you're, you are getting older yeah. are gone. I think people are like, you accept the age that you are and off you go. Give me a date for the new album. For me? Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. Let's, get it. let's get a date. By this time, <laughs> I'll be back on the Global Gale podcast talking about my new album. Oh, gosh. Uh, what, what year are we in now? 2022? Most of us are. 2022, we're nearly over. Yeah. It's nearly over when you think about it. Like, by the time I finish this Gorillaz tour, it's going to be the end of October. Yep. And then it's Christmas. Yep. And then I'm back out with Leopard in January. Okay. So that's 2023 gone. You know, 2023 gone. Christmas 2024? Yes. We do an old duet of Fairy Tale in New York, you and me, banged out with the single. I tell you, we deadly. You make a few, Bob. But can we use the proper lyrics, like? Oh, God, yeah. Ah, look at you know that's art. You can't go change an art just for that. Yeah, I know. I mean, I I just don't understand it. Like the lyrics weren't weren't written to be offensive, yeah. and and that's the problem with today. Everything is offensive. Like well, I think it, like if you put lines in a character's mouth in that situation, it's a character. Mm -hmm. right? I don't think there's any value judgment to be drawn from it. You know. No. Also, anything Ronan Keating ever did is automatically fucking wrong in my eyes. Right. So if he changed. Ah, it, poor Ronan. Lovely fella. <laughs> And Ronan, if you need a production coordinator, I know the very woman, right? 
but for now, I know you want I'll to get be available in 2025. <laughs> you have to tour that album first, and then you can do Ronan. Oh, for the meantime, it's Las Vegas. It's like breakfast time is running out. Other never does in Las Vegas, but I'm going to let you go and eat. Sinead, man, thanks so much for talking. Philip O'Connor, it's a pleasure. It's just a natural evolution, you know. If you're around for 30 odd years like we are, you've got kids that were fans when they were teenagers. Then life gets in the way. They get married, they have kids, they go away, they spend money on stuff like that. And then when their kids grow, they come back. When they're free, they go out again, you know. And then sometimes their kids come too. We just did three shows in Australia and really looking out over the audience, you could literally see multi-generations of, of you know, young kids catching up. There you go. That is Joe Elliott from Def Leppard talking about fame and talking about how the fans have changed. That was a little clip from a couple of years ago. Didn't actually get to see Joe this time around. That stadium over there, lads, it's absolutely massive. If you're Irish and you're in Las Vegas at all, it's well worth a visit. They have the American football there and that kind of thing. But uh, great to catch up with Sinead. And I caught up with a few other lads. There's a, a couple of boys over there. If you've ever been to uh, the Re-Raw Bar at the Mandalay Bay Hotel, there's two lads there. The Black Donnellys, Dave Brown and Dave. Dave Rooney, two tremendous musicians, been playing there for years now. Uh, Dave Brown has, it, it might be three, it could be four Guinness World Records. He broke the world record for playing uh, guitar in the Temple Bar Pub in Dublin many years ago. And they're just two phenomenal musicians. If you're passing through there, do go and have a look. But have a look at that stadium. It's actually quite close by the Mandalay Bay. I think I actually walked there from the Mandalay Bay uh, when I was going to see that gig. That's nearly all we have time for, for this week. Um, again, we're always looking for guests, always looking for stories to tell. There are stories coming up from New Zealand. I'm looking for people from Australia. I'll be uh, touching down with the community in San Francisco and in Philadelphia as well. There's also an Irish teacher I've been speaking to in Kenya. So keep it tuned in here, lads, right? Uh, the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast feed, you'll get this, you'll get Irish in Sweden, you get Premier Swedes, you get Arrowman in Stockholm, which is to do with media and Scandinavia and all that. It's all there for you. But hopefully now, every week, every 10 days or so, there will be a Global Gale podcast there for you. If you can support on patreon.com forward slash hermans.com, please do. If you can't, Jesus, I hope you enjoyed it at least and you got a bit of crack out of it and it should be listening again next week. But until then, look after yourselves, look after one another and uh, if you happen to see me out and about around this wild world of ours, uh, do say hello and come and tell me your story because I'm very much looking forward to you. Good luck. Good <laughs> luck.